Anyway, it's lovely uh, to be here with you again this morning, and we are continuing our, our series in Corinthians, but the title of this may throw you a little bit. Uh, I've titled it, I Am My Brother's Keeper. Now, those words might sound familiar or maybe almost familiar. It's, it's the unspoken answer to the, the question that God had thrown at Cain way back in the book of Genesis. If you know the story, Cain was jealous, envious of uh, the Lord's affection towards Abel. And so he murdered his brother. And when the Lord obviously knew, but came asking, where, where is your brother Abel? Cain's response was, well, it was indignant. He said, am I my brother's keeper? We're never given the answer to that. But it's assumed that we, the reader, know what the answer is. And the answer, well, if you didn't know, <laughs> I've made it the title. <laughs> I am my brother's keeper. Now, by way of introduction, as I said, we are continuing in Second Corinthians. You might think, well, what's Cain and Abel and all that got to do with the study we've been doing in Second Corinthians? Well, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, as I've been reading it, I've realized, uh, I've been convinced and I'd say convicted, and hope you will be too, of the necessity for accountability in our lives. The need for it to be an active, dynamic element in our Christian lives. Particularly if we ever want to achieve anything of any worth, of lasting worth, both in our own lives and in the lives of other people. But before we talk, uh, continue, I want to um, relate a story to you before we open up the passage. Let me read this to you. In one of my assignments as a young infantry officer, I was sent to the 48th Infantry near Frankfurt, Germany. In those days, our prized weapon was a huge 280mm um, atomic cannon guarded by infantry platoons. These guns were hauled around the forests or trucks to keep the Soviets from guessing their location. One day, Captain Tom Miller assigned my platoon to guard a 280. I alerted my men, loaded my 45 caliber pistol, and jumped into my jeep. I had not gone far when I realized that my 45 was gone. I was petrified. In the army, losing a weapon is a serious business. I had no choice but to radio Captain Miller and tell him. You what? He said in belief. He paused a few seconds, then added, All right, continue the mission. When I returned uneasily, contemplating my fate, Miller called me over. I've got something for you, he said, handing me the pistol. Some kids in the village found it where it fell out of your holster. Kids found it? I felt a cold chill. Yeah, he said. Luckily, they only got off one round before we had the shot and took the gun away. The disastrous possibilities left me limp. Don't let that happen again. He drove off. I checked the magazine, and I found it was still full. The gun had not been fired. Later, I learned that I had dropped it in my tent before it even started. Miller had fabricated the scene about the kids to give me a good scare. Today, the army might hold an investigation, call in lawyers, and likely enter a bad mark on my record. Miller gave me the chance to learn from my mistake. 
His example of intelligent leadership was not lost on me. Nobody ever got to the top without slipping up. When someone stumbles, I don't believe in stamping on him. My philosophy is, pick him up, dust them off, and get them moving again. And that was uh, Colin Powell. Some of you might remember that he was, even dare say, legendary statesman for the United States government. He was a Secretary of State, and maybe in the current culture they could have done with more people like him. <laughs> but there we are. But, you know, when we talk about, when we start thinking about accountability, our perception of it is somewhat skewed, and we sometimes view it as a negative, don't we? As I've reflected on this, I've come to the idea that, you forgive the illustration, but it, it seemed good to me. If accountability was a beautiful, ornate hairbrush that's been left by the sides and let come into misuse, gathering dust and forgotten, we suddenly see it when we need the, the need of an immediate need of a toilet brush. It will do the job, but it's not what it was ultimately intended for, was it? It's good at cleaning up mess, but it's so much more useful as a thing to enhance something beautiful. You know, when I reflect back on my earliest Christian years, you know, for the lack of accountability, I could have avoided some pitfalls in life. But also, I would have experienced far more mountaintop experiences as well for the want of having accountability. You see, accountability is to promote you into the sphere of where you should be operating, not just to hold your head up above water. I wonder, and I know I've used it myself, and I was saying to my congregation earlier, it's a, it's a statement that I hate. <laughs> it's quite a strong word, but I really do hate it. <laughs> and it's that phrase when we say, I should have. <laughs> I could have. Or we should have. Or we could have, if only we'd done this, if only done that. It is a miserable statement, isn't it? It doesn't offer any sense of hope. All it does, it just looks back on the failure. Think, oh well. And you don't learn anything from it. But accountability is the reverse of that. Accountability actually says, I will do this, or I can do this, and we will do that because you, my friends, are going to help me and we're going to achieve it. That sounds much more positive, doesn't it? So with that, we're going to turn to the passage today. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're reading from verse 16 to chapter 9, verse 5. It will come up on the screen, and uh, I think you've got Bibles at the end of your aisles as well, if you, if you don't have one. So let's read. Thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. 
We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, for that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Amen. Mr. Brum and I first read this passage, and I know uh, some others in the church have read it and preached on it as well. It's, it, is a th- it kind of throws you at first, well, it threw me at first when I read it, partly because it, bit, it read a bit like the minutes of a project planning meeting. <laughs> and that's all very good and well, Paul, but how does that impact on my life? How does the collection of this offering and its delivery help me in my life and struggles? Whether it succeeds or fails, what what can I learn, what can I glean from this passage? Well, the thing is, I believe this collection did happen, and it was successfully delivered. And it's because of the very elements that Paul is talking about and is putting in place for the Corinthian church. It's the enthusiasm, the initiative, the team. These all amount to a beautiful example of something called accountability. As I said before, a relation with that term has received an unfair and misconstrued appreciation at times. Accountability and words pertaining to that only tend to be used uh, or raised or mentioned when somebody has acted in a way that's morally wrong or they've broken the law, or did something, and it wouldn't have happened if they'd been accountable, but I hope they will be accountable now. (laughs) But it misses a wonderful aspect of accountability, and that it is in itself a good thing to have in place in our lives. And Titus, Paul, and the representatives are putting in place here things, not not just see this donation successfully travel across the Mediterranean, What they're actually doing is they're putting in a structure, a framework here to see this congregation rise to Christian maturity and exercise that what God has called them to be. But at the moment, they're in danger of missing it. Accountability, in a sense, should be like the air that we breathe. You know, when it's working as it should be, it's almost invisible. 
but it's essentially life-giving, isn't it? It's like air. When a living, breathing thing is starved of air, well, the consequences usually follow. <laughs> and when you look at Scripture and you're looking with that mindset through the eyes or through the lens of accountability, you see it. You see it when it's there and you see it when it's not there. When you look at David, King David in the Old Testament, when he made himself accountable and to those around him, he was riding on the crest of a wave, wasn't he? He was succeeding, he was doing great things for God, and the nation itself was prospering and advancing. But when he moved himself aside from being accountable, when he moved himself beyond observation and became lofty, that's when he failed. And again, it's what we saw in David, as I saw in the whole history of the Old Testament as well, when the kings of Israel and Judah, when they made themselves subject to the kingship of God and the wisdom of God, things were good. But when they didn't, when they moved out with that, when they failed, they refused to listen to God, when they refused to be accountable to the prophets and the sages, they failed. And everything else failed as well. So again, just picking up David, his success in life was not due to his physical prowess. It wasn't his intelligence. It wasn't his charisma. It was his willingness to be under the accountability of God. And herein lies the success for every one of us as well in advancing in the Christian life. When we invite accountability into our lives, and also when we graciously (laughs) receive it, it does something in us. It doesn't just keep things on an even keel or keep our head above water. Actually, it promotes us and lifts us up to do great things for God, doesn't it? And I think that's what this passage is such a supreme example of. It's, and I, I desperately want to see it in myself more and more. And I hope that you'll get the bug for it as well. <laughs> you know, because so many God-inspired dreams and visions never saw the light of day because they were never held accountable to anyone. I was... One of our worship leaders uh, in Barueri, he often jokes and teases me at times because, unbeknown to many people, but he's one of the few, um, I have a banjo at home. (laughs) I've actually had a banjo for near 17 years. And it's a silly example, but it is a good example nonetheless of accountability. When I first got it, I was like um, gleaming a cube. I was doing really well. Uh, that was because I had a banjo tutor. And I went there each week, each week where he gave me exercises to practice, and then I would go back the following week and want to see how I was getting on with them and how I was advancing and learn to play the banjo. And before I knew it, I'd learned the basic strum, I'd learned a few chords, and I was ready to play some tunes. It was great. But, sadly, my banjo tutor passed away, and I never found another one. And so the banjo began to fall into disuse because nobody was holding me account to learning it anymore. And it just began to gather more dust than it did any tunes on it. So the sad story sounds like a banjo song, didn't it? <laughs> Maybe I'll write one. But it's a silly example, but it's, it, it, I'm sure it maybe it, it strikes a chord with some of us. Something we've said, you know, I, I had a desire to do that, but, well, 
I never got around to doing it because there was nobody holding me account. And so I hope you see the theme of that weaving through this passage. Paul, Titus, the church are zealous for the community of Corinth to become the people that God intends them to be. They've made some great boasts, some great promises in the past that they would excel in donating to this great uh, collection. I think it was the famine appeal that was happening in um, the region at the time, and all the, uh, the churches were encouraged to give towards the poor families who were suffering in Jerusalem. And so all the churches were rallying. The Macedonians were rallying. Everyone was rallying. And the Corinthians said, yeah, you're going to give to this, and you just wait and see how much we're going to give. Well, where is it? <laughs> it does say something to us as well about the power of words, doesn't it? We all know the power of words. They can build up, but they can also destroy when they don't produce any fruit. And Jesus said to us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so in a sense, we know that we are people of the word. But we should also be people of our word as well, shouldn't we? So the Corinthians, to their credit, they were ambitious and promised them a gift that would bless the church at this time. And I particularly want to focus on Titus here because, you know, what we see in Titus is this great love. He had a great love for the, the congregation in Corinth. He loved them dearly as much as Paul. And he doesn't wish for them to falter or to miss the opportunity to be the people of blessing. And so he instigates this plan to encourage the Corinthians to go back and help and say, guys, let's do this. Let's make it happen. You want to do it. Let's put things in place. He wants to see them successful towards coming through following through in their promises and their ideals. And so there are three things I want to flag up, particularly with regards to putting accountability into our lives. The first thing is enthusiasm. Get enthusiastic. <laughs> Get enthusiastic about the things of God. And I have to ask, where did Titus's enthusiasm appear from? Where did it come from? I don't know if you know the story of William Carey. He's regarded as the father of the modern-day missionary movement. You know, in his day, he was described as an enthusiast. And at the time, it wasn't meant as a compliment. <laughs> but that we should all be enthusiasts for the things of God. And that's where William Carey got his, his, his enthusiasm from. That's where Titus got his enthusiasm from, for the love of God. Passionate about God, passionate about Christ, loving God, loving Christ, loving his church. You know, and we've all got the elements there, they're there in us. All we just need to do is turn up the heat. <laughs> you know, purposely spend time in the presence of Christ. That's all you need to do. That sounds quite passive. It is in one sense, but it's like stepping into the furnace. It's going to change and transform you. You will become passionate. You become more in love with him. You will be on him. And to a point where you will overspill. And you cannot contain your desire to do something to glorify the name of Christ. Get enthusiastic. Seek the face of Christ. You know, Jesus was zealous, wasn't he? 
I mean, I see that word is used in the passage as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at Strong's concordance here, but I would say zealous is a pretty strong use of the term enthusiasm. <laughs> Biblical enthusiasm. <laughs> Get biblically enthusiastic. Get zealous for God. So I want to encourage you. Be deliberate. Become enthusiastic for the things of God. And it starts with enthusiasm, but it doesn't end there. It follows through by getting a team. Get a team around you. A team who will hold you to account. And understand they're not there to anticipate the worst. <laughs> they're around you to help you achieve the very best. The very good thing that God has put in your heart to do. You know, when we look at this passage, there's a plethora of people around this whole thing. And it's not because it's about money. It's about the character and the heart of this congregation in Corinth, which is actually at stake. They set themselves an ambitious goal. They want to bless the wider church. They have the heart to do something. But they're teetering on the edge of failing. Is Paul their keeper? Is Titus their keeper? They are, aren't they? And to sit back and wait for failure is not the way of Christ, is it? You know, when God put it in the heart of Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls, he didn't do it by himself, did he? He did it with a team. He shared his plan, he shared his vision with others, and they took hold of it. And they went for it. And they succeeded. So don't ever say Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. He didn't. He did it, and his team did it. You know, when you consider the odds were stacked against them, we sometimes miss the power of encouragement and of the team. When you, when you consider, was there not of possibly in days when Nehemiah was just like, you know what, I'm just going to go back. I've had enough of this. But then when he sees those unknown families and unknown individuals, as poor as they are, given they're all rebuilding these walls, they're not, have stirred his heart. Say, we can do this. And we will do this. <laughs> and they did it. And so for the challenges for us as well, to come alongside one another, not stand 12 feet apart, <laughs> but come alongside one another and encourage one another, exhort one another to do the great things that God has maybe put in our hearts. And also to receive those exhortations. I know sometimes we get a bit... Just receive it. We love one another. We want to see the best in one another bring into the fore. You know, Paul has often through the ages been misconstrued as being a bit of a, a lawn himself, a lone ranger. He never was. And if anyone ever says that to you, they're talking rubbish. <laughs> what made Paul unique is that his ministry was to the outsider. He was sent to the Gentiles, those who were out with. But when you look at Paul, when you look at all of his letters, he was the prime example of team ministry. Everything that he did, everything that he achieved, he achieved it in and through a team. When you look at his introductions and his letters, he's naming people left, right and center. When he's closing his letters, he's naming people left, right and center. People that he's worked with, people who he loves, people who have done this... 
there's not much room for content, Paul. Okay, I get it. <laughs> you work as a team. And not to critique the other apostles, but don't you think that it's possible, when you look at the, the volume of material in the New Testament itself, Paul actually achieved perhaps even more than any of the other apostles. Was it because he knew what it was to work as a team? to make himself accountable and to call other peoples to account. The model is there even before the church. When Jesus sent out those disciples to um, baptize and to um, uh, exercise and exorcise in the region, he didn't send them out one by one, did he? He sent them out in twos. So the model was there right from the very beginning or even before the beginning of the church. To exhort one another, challenge one another, keep pushing one another on to do the great things that we've been commissioned to do. Last thing I want to say is when you've got enthusiasm, when you've got a team, just get busy. <laughs> just go for it. You know, it was many years ago now, but it became known as my press conference. It's when I, I may have shared this story with you before, but I used to work for a publishing company in Glasgow many years ago. And just the nature of the, it was probably an office staff of about maybe 30 people. And it was uh, had a lot of connections with the, the national papers. So everyone who came through the doors often went then on to work for like the Daily Record, the Sunday Mail, and so on. And that was the way everyone was heading. So it was quite a fast turnaround of staff. And I enjoyed working there and enjoyed uh, the company of lots of friends. But I did have this kind of, mm, something in such a way, I never ever got the chance to you know, share my faith with them. And so it came a point where at church, at my home church in Glasgow, where it was just one of, like, like one of these life builders like Bible studies and it was all about evangelism and so this little group of us started doing this study and felt the stirrings of the Holy Spirit you know, and the convictions oh yeah, yeah, well, we really should be doing things shouldn't we <laughs> and it got to like, almost like a pressure cooker we were talking about this and we were urging one another on saying yeah, let's, by next week let's come back with testimonies and stories of things and what we did and how we, we shared our faith and so I found myself that Wednesday at work, uh, the day or the morning, the afternoon before the Bible study in the evening, we were going to be coming back to share our stories. It's like, I've been carrying this burden for a week, and I know that I'm going to go there tonight, and they're going to say, hey, Archie, how did you go on? What did you, what did you do? What? And so with the unction of the Holy Spirit, and the awareness, I have a peer group who were going to ask me, I said, excuse me, everyone. Can I just call these together for a moment? <laughs> so 30-odd people gathered around about my production desk. I said, guys, thanks. I just wanted to take the opportunity just to share my faith with you. I said, I told them about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And conveniently, it was just before lunchtime. So as I finished, I said, right, I'm just going to get my lunch. <laughs> well, I'm still alive and well today. It, was, it became actually a 
one they would often refer to as my press conference. And I stand here today sharing with you a lovely act of devotion. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But also I have to give credit to that little small group who are willing me on and encouraging me and who are going to ask me, how did you go on? That's the power of accountability. Sure, we can say, oh, I just need me and the Holy Spirit. You do. But the Holy Spirit gives you brothers and sisters in Christ to exhort you and to encourage you to do the very thing that you need to do. You know, we've got a lady in our church. Her name's Paula. Some of you may have met her before. I can't remember the name of the condition, but she does have a physical condition that is she only has very short hours of periods where she feels physically able and energized to do anything. But you might remember a few, maybe over a year ago, when we were doing a Bible study across all the sites uh, about looking at our communities and looking at outward. And, you know, we've got, it just had like questions in it that caused us to start looking at us and start looking at our community. Say, what, what do you think we need here? What do you think we should be doing? And the little, the little group that she had. She was uh, the, the small group leader of. We're asking themselves these questions, and they came upon a common uh, need, and that was the lack of mental health uh, resources. They seemed to be just winding up or petering out because there wasn't any funding anymore. And so that little group talked, and they set themselves a goal whereby they were going to start a community group. And it meets in the Tesco community room in Inverurie. And it's been doing that ever since. You know, it's a little example of what we can do when we have an idea. You know, when we get enthusiastic about the things of God. When we gather a team around us, and it could be any size. And we start talking about our godly dreams and visions. And in that, you may well have the very resources to pull this thing off. That's just a little example from Paula. And I know here in Buxburn, well, you are in Buxburn now. You did great things when you were in West Hill. You touched lots of lives, and you're doing the same here as well. But I just want to encourage you, you you're not finished yet. Your congregation isn't disbanding. You're not going anywhere. You're here for a purpose, and that is to do the good works that God has prepared for you. So much more than you even realize yet. There's some empty chairs here that are going to be filled. And God's going to fill them in and through you, through the connections that you make, through the initiatives you take to be a blessing in your community. So can I just encourage you this morning, get enthusiastic. (laughs) Get enthusiastic. Get into the presence of Jesus. Let his enthusiasm rub off on you. (laughs) Get a team around you and get busy. Yeah? Let's stand.